Welcome if you've, this is your first time with us or if you're just visiting. Um, um, we're working our way through a series in 1 Thessalonians. Um, I feel I should try and explain to you the visual because the number of people who have come to me this week with scratching heads and a bit confused. Can I, uh, well, let's do it together. Can anybody, has anybody worked out why we have that image for this series? So, Kat. I think like, it kind of bogged down in real life because there's so many houses. Thank you. There we go. Do you get it? So it's hope, you see. It's this kind of overbearing sort of life, which are the flats, and you're looking up. And what you're looking up to is the sky, which you're just coming back. Anyway, let, sorry. Failed. Let me, um, let me lead us in prayer. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the example of the Thessalonians that we saw last week as they received your word and didn't just pass it off as a nice idea or lifestyle advice, but were utterly transformed by it. And so we pray as we spend time in this second chapter in Paul's letter, we pray again that you would be at work in us, that you would speak to us. And as he talks lots about motives and what's going on inside, We pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might have an honesty, and that your gospel would do its work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll go back. So, um, from last week, one of the the big challenges for me was actually in verses 2 to 3. So, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, that would help you and it would help me. I don't have a Bible. I have a Bible. Um, And verse 2 to 3 weren't even really the main point um, of what was going on. But I think the thing that struck me, remember Paul talked of faith, love, and hope, and we tied them up with turning, serving, and waiting in verse 9 and 10. Um, and, And he describes them then as a church who work and labor and endure. And yet I think the challenge for me this week in chewing those things over again has been I spend quite a lot of my week working, laboring, enduring, chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. But the question I want to ask is, what's my reason for doing those things? Where does the working, laboring, enduring actually spring from? Where does it come from? What is it the fruit of? Is it sort of routine or habit? Is it duty? Is it because I'm paid to do it? Is it because nobody else will do it if I don't do it? Or something else? Why do we do what we do? Or is it genuinely, as with the Thessalonians, springing from faith, hope and love? Why are you even here this morning? What's going on behind the scenes? I think the scary thing is you can have two people doing the exact same things, living identical lives, and yet you dig below the surface and you find they are doing it for very different reasons. And you know, that's exactly where Paul lands in this second chapter. The bulk of this passage, I think, is is him giving us a bit of a window into his heart, trying to to help us understand why he does what he does. Do you remember why he's doing that? Do you remember we said he's, he's defending himself against attacks from other Christians, it seems to be. That seems to be lots of what's going on, chapters one, two, and three in this letter. Little grenades that people have thrown at him, seeking to undermine him, to undermine his ministry, 
and so he's defending himself. They say, well, Paul, you're just like all the other traveling preachers of the day. You come with your message to take advantage of people. And maybe the Thessalonians are sort of scratching their heads. Well, you know, he did scarper pretty quickly. Maybe that is what happened. That would have been the situation in Paul's day. Um, Travelling teachers would come to your town. They would bring you their, their truth. But they would bring their truth at a cost. Maybe they would target the, the naive, the gullible, the, the needy, the rich perhaps. Here's one quote um, about them. Um, one commentator says, they, they were meant, there were many wandering charlatans who made their way about the Greek world, peddling their religious or philosophical ideas and living at the expense of their devotees. Maybe it's a bit unfair, but has that much changed in our day? Not so much travelling round now, for sure, but teachers who bring you their wares at a price, generally it's on TV, ring this number, click this link, Download the giving form, and the Lord will bless you. He will give you the life you deserve, we hear. More on that in a bit. But Paul, it seems, has been sort of lumped in with that lot, the traveling, peddling preachers of the day. Is he just a greedy swindler? Is he someone who doesn't practice what he preaches? Is he someone who brings truth, but truth at a price? And he scarpers when the heat gets turned up. So in particular, chapter 1 last week, do you remember, we, we looked at the results of his ministry. And Paul said, look, look at this little church. Yes, it's little, but look at the way God has transformed them. My ministry, my message, my gospel is authentic because this kind of lifestyle change isn't something you can bring on yourself. This is supernatural work of the Lord. These are a people who have had their lives turned upside down and inside out. Utterly transformed. Now they are turners, servers, waiters because of faith, love, hope. This isn't natural stuff. This is supernatural stuff from the Lord. And so then we reach chapter 2 and the focus is less on the results of his ministry and more on Paul himself. And if you like, he, he draws back the curtain and says, have a look into my heart. Let me tell you why I do what I do. And there are three aspects I think that he defends at least. And then the outworking as well, we'll see at the end of the chapter. But the first one is his determination. That is, that is, Paul was not a minister who who ran away at the first smell of danger. Now, he did leave Thessalonica, fearing for his life. But Paul did not just scarper straight away. He endured in his mission. He endured hardships. He was determined. So verse 1, have a look down. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Do you see, Paul says, if you're a fake, if you've made it all up, if you're just acting, you're not going to suffer for something that you know to be a lie. If you know it's untrue, you're not going to suffer for it. That's ludicrous. And Paul says, I'm familiar with suffering. You you knew about Philippi. You had heard about that. You can pick that up back in Acts 16. Luke recounts it for us, but he refers to it here in verse 2 of the passage. Acts 16 and verse 22, the, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 
When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. That was Philippi. Something pretty similar was next along the line in Thessalonica. Acts 17, they were chased away by a mercenary mob paid for by jealous Jews. And yet despite the opposition, Paul and his team were determined to get the gospel out. He dared to tell them the gospel such that even verse 1, there were results. There was fruit. We heard about that last week in the church. Yet the principle's right, isn't it? If, if the heat has turned up, if, if, if trouble comes our way, then the temptation is to quieten down a bit. Maybe to head somewhere else. Maybe just to put the volume down. To be a bit less different. And if that's true for Paul, the evangelist, apostle, church planter, missionary... I take it it's true for us as well in principle. We're in a sense, we're all full-timers in a sense. We're, we're the everyday evangelists, the everyday missionaries who, who in our daily lives are taking Jesus with us, speaking for him, living for him, intentionally in our, on our travels, whether it's to work or at school or at the school gate or wherever the Lord has called you to. Everyday missionaries. If we want to be a Thessalonian church, as we heard about last week, and we want the message of Christ to ring out from us, then let me encourage you, as Paul did, to, to despite the opposition, despite the awkward moments, to patiently but sensitively, courageously speak of Christ. Because it's God who brings the results, verse 1. And so Paul says, look at how determined we were. Look at how we suffered for what we believe, and you'll see that we are authentic. And actually, as we'll see in a bit, the kind of suffering that they go through is the kind of suffering that the church will take as well and live like. So point one, there's determination. Second one, there is drive. I'm going to read verse three to seven for us, and I want you, if you can, to try and work out different, four different defences of his ministry that Paul makes. It's as if he's got four grenades being chucked at him and he kind of grabs them and throws them back, defending himself from different um, uh, accusations against him, four names that they might call him. Let me read from verse 3. Paul says to them, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. And you see, he's defending himself. Clearly, accusations have been made, and Paul is saying, no, 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 let me tell you what really happened. I think there are four, at least four there. Here they are. Paul, you're a power grabber. Paul, you're a people pleaser. Paul, you're a money stealer. And Paul, you're a praise seeker. Again, don't they just ring bells in our situation, in our context? This is what a cynical world thinks of the church, thinks of the people of Christ, or particularly church leaders, people like me. These are verse 3. These are the impure motives fleshed out. 
In fact, the impure word there may even have a hint of sort of sexual connotations. Maybe rather like the, the musicians of today. Apparently, the traveling speakers took advantage of, of their followers, their groupies. But these impure motives, that they're, they're self-centered, they're worldly, they're, it's, it's worldliness creeping into the church, infecting the church. And that's the exact opposite of Paul. We're going to look at each one along the way and just consider that the challenges and the encouragements for us in the sort of daily, normal, nitty-gritty life stuff. How you fill your week. So the first one there is power grabber. I think that's in verse 4. He, he says he has been entrusted by God, approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. God has appointed him as, as a steward of the gospel. You can hear what they're saying, can't you? I mean, look at this Paul. Self-appointed leadership position. Did anybody else hear this, this calling he talks of on the road to Emmaus, really? Can we prove it? How do we know it's true? He's just made it up. He's wanting to impose himself upon others. It's, it's a power play. He wants to be a big fish in a small pond. How do we know Paul is legit, they say? I think he's already given us part of the answer. And that would be, it's a funny kind of job to take on when it's a job that involves opposition and persecution and suffering and hardships. If you want to be a self-appointed leader, let me encourage you to establish another kind of church that will make life much easier for you rather than one where you will end up dying for your faith. It's not the sort of job you would appoint yourself to, it's the sort of job that you would be divinely appointed for, says Paul. The only reason I'm doing this is because God has made me do this. So power grabber, no, people pleaser. And it flows on from that verse four. He's not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You, you know we never use flattery, says Paul. And the big temptation for us is, isn't it, is to want to be liked. We're not immune from that. If you're in any kind of ministry, just in general life, the temptation is to please people. Maybe if you're in any kind of ministry, it's to, to use flattery or to water down a message so that people will stay, people will serve, people will give. Those things are never far away. It's a temptation, but it mustn't be for us. In fact, one of the things I love about having a partnership with Christians in sport, and um, Jen and Dave, great to have you here, and others as well, but it's that one of the little phrases, the mottos, is the audience of one. What, why do you do what you do? It's for an audience of one. What the Lord thinks is what matters. And it's very simple. But it's very difficult. Isn't it? To concentrate on pleasing God only for what we do, not to impress others, not to be seen as being better than others, but simply pleasing God and serving his people. Praying that you wouldn't care what others think of you, but only what he thinks. Pray that for me as I have the privileged opportunity to stand in front of you on a Sunday morning, for others who lead here at Maudlam Road, that we wouldn't care what you lot think, really. But actually, when it comes down to it, we would care what the Lord thinks. We'd be faithful to him. The temptation is always there to seek adulation amongst people. But what he thinks is what's important. So Paul, no, he's not a power grabber. He's not a people pleaser. Is he a money stealer? Now he says he's not greedy, end of verse 5, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And then verse 9, a bit later as well, do you see, surely, brothers and sisters, um, our toil and hardship, we work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. 
You see, Paul's usual practice on missionary journeys is that he works hard, he, he makes tents, and he sells them so he's not a burden on the people that he's speaking to. The people are not to fund his mission. Although, strikingly, verse 6, he said he, he could have asserted that authority. I, I take it what's going on there is that as an apostle, as one sent from God with a message from God, he really had every right for them to put him up. Again, that would have been the case very often with traveling speakers. But Paul wants to avoid that charge. He wants to be above, beyond reproach. And so he funds himself. Again, it's striking. If you look down at church history, you will see it is littered with denominations full of ministers who went into ministry, believe it or not, for greed and for comfort. Back in the day, depending on your denomination, you got a pretty nice house with a job. You got a pretty good wage. You got respectability and standing in the community and you only had to work on a Sunday give or take extraordinary isn't it it's very different from our day but I know anyone here and there are many here thinking about ministry longer term never let money or greed be a driver for what you do or perhaps better for where you work where you want to minister for the kind of jobs you go for Lots of deprived communities have jobs going, but people don't want to take them because it'll be harder, because the work will be slower rather than a big student town or um, somewhere where you get a bigger house. I think it's close to home as well. This idea of greed, this idea of money working its way into ministry and into our faith. Um, I'm going to not make any friends here, but some quotes from from the founders of a church not too far away from here. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Maybe I've missed the point. Come and tell me off afterwards. Um, A book on money. Uh, Prosperity is part of new covenant blessings, it says. It says, I believe that God wants the church to have the kind of wealth that the world experiences. And then this one is extraordinary. It's time to relax and become comfortable around money. You need to stretch yourself, position yourself right out of your comfort zone. For example, it may involve a little exercise like putting on your best clothes, ordering coffee in a fancy restaurant or hotel lobby, even though you could make the coffee for half the price at home. The experience may enlarge your thinking. You may even feel better about yourself and life. So so is financial prosperity part of the new covenant blessing? Some churches would say so. I think Paul would disagree. Is he a money stealer? No, says Paul. Is he a praise seeker? Fourthly, I take it that's the outworking of being the people pleaser. You you people please and so you receive praise from them. The two are tied very closely together. It's a fine line being driven and shaped by that. So the praise of others becomes addictive and necessary for you to live, for you to do ministry in a certain way. It shapes how you make decisions. It shapes what ministry is about. Their adoration, their approval becomes what makes you tick. I think in a world of social media, this is really important where you've got tweets and retweets and posts and reposts and likes and loves and followers and friends. And it's easy to seek to build a name for yourself, an identity online. I think verse 6 is for people like us living in a time like this. It says, we're not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Again, it's audience of one. 
All Paul was interested in was that others would follow Christ. He wants Jesus to be massive. And just Paul to be the footnote. Jesus to be remembered. And Paul to be forgotten. He said, look, look through the curtain. Look into my heart. Let me tell you what I'm about. I'm not a power grabber. I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not a money stealer. I'm not a praise seeker. That is my drive. I'm not those things. And again, some of us are in different ministry positions, working for different organizations or different uh, things at church or wherever it might be. But many of us aren't. And yet I think the principles are there for each of us. I think if you boil it right down, it's interesting, it basically comes down to money or power. That seems to sit behind each of them somewhere. It's either wanting money and things and a bank balance and security, or it's wanting power. It's wanting to be in control, to shape our environments, to be admired by others, to get our way all the time. And if you think those things aren't, if you think those things aren't a problem for you, let me ask, how are you when they're taken away? So when you don't have money, or you don't have things, or you don't have a bank balance, or you don't have security, how do you cope? Or when you don't have power, you don't get to be in control and to shape everything. You don't get your whole way the whole time. How do you cope? Maybe you're tempted to manipulate circumstances or situations or people so you get what you want. Just to slightly pull the strings on the puppet. Or maybe you get anxious and stressed and fearful and scared and panicky. Maybe you get angry when you don't get things your way. You become the proverbial angry rhino who charges at everyone or you become the proverbial grumpy porcupine who just closes in and is spiky and withdrawn because you don't get your way. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. Paul says, have a look into my heart and let me tell you what I'm like. Let me tell you the wrong things that can drive people but don't drive me. Maybe we want to be a power grabber, people pleaser, money stealer, praise seeker. Maybe those things are closer than we realise, actually. The purity of Paul's motivations put us to shame. So determination, drive, and now design, thirdly. They're all Ds, for which I apologise. It's striking. Paul's overarching model for ministry are two pictures that he gives us in the next bit. And he talks about a mother, and he talks about a father in the way he does ministry. So so verse 7 and 8 is a nursing mother. And then later on we'll see father. Verse Seven, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You see, Paul and his team were like a mum. They cared for this vulnerable, brand new little baby church. They were gentle with them, like a, like a mother cares for her children. They loved them. That's one of the things you usually notice about mums. Extraordinary love they have for their kids the way they pour themselves out for their children. Again, it's a privilege to have so many newborns at Morglam Road at the moment. I have to say, since having children, 
um, ourselves firsthand, you see something of the energy and the dedication of what it takes to be a mum of a tiny baby, a dad as well. But there are certain things that dads can't do. Mums particularly, I think. You see it beautifully, new mums having their lives just turned upside down. The, the amount they do, the reality of life now, the lack of sleep, days off are distant memories. Feeding, nappies, sterilising. Feeding, entertaining, nappies, sterilising. Feeding, nappies, it just goes on and on and on. You have to, to share your whole life with them. It's very intimate. It's moving when we see that happen, isn't it? What does it mean for a Christian minister or missionary or someone like Paul to, to care for somebody like a mum? What, what does it mean for us as a church where we have this kind of mentality? Well, have a look at verse 8. You see, firstly, he, he loved them enough to share the gospel with them. I think that's the foundational thing. We miss that almost. But the most loving thing you can do is, is tell them about 1 verse 10, isn't it? It's to tell them they need to escape from the wrath to come. They need to trust Christ who's, who's risen and ascended and will return. So firstly, they shared the gospel. It was more than just a hit and run job, though. Drop the gospel bomb and run on to the next thing quickly. And they, they shared their lives as well. They, they really got to know the Thessalonians. They, they poured themselves into them. They cared about them. You, you get a glimpse of that later on in the letter especially next week. It wasn't just an arm's length thing. They, they really cared. They hung out together. They, they modeled what the Christian life looked like for them, perhaps. They showed them how Jesus affects everything. And of course, it's much, much easier to keep everybody else at arm's length. Let's be honest about that. It's, it's much more costly it's much more difficult it's much more potentially awkward to draw people into our into our remit into our area it's better just to keep people far away isn't it to avoid having your life under the scrutiny of others to to avoid the sort of proximity that means we feel a bit uncomfortable because you see actually that i need grace too hmm and yet with Paul, this authentic ministry, he loved them so much that they were like newborn, uh, mothers of newborns. Pops any ideas of professionalism, of distance, of people being projects? or It, it cares and it, it loves and it's messy and it's sharing lives. and Like a mum caring for a newborn. But more than that as well, it's father too. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Do you see that, that their godliness mattered enough that Paul spoke to them? Maybe at times for it to, to be a little awkward. Sure, he loved and cared like a mum, but the verse 12 words are speaking words. He, he encourages, he comforts, he, he urges. Maybe in your mind, have the picture of the over-enthusiastic father on a Saturday morning who's, 
who's living his dreams through his son or his daughter, following every match through wind, through rain, through snow, on the sidelines, always there, faithfully shouting, keep going. These are strong, challenging words. These are exhortation-type words. He's, He's longing for them to live holy lives. For the God who calls them into his kingdom, verse 12, that seems to be a now thing. Live holy lives now because you're in the kingdom now, but also it's the God who's coming back who calls you into his glory. End of verse 12, it's the future again. The reality of the future in the now. He's the God whom you will spend forever with. That reality is to motivate your life now. Live holy lives now because he's coming back. That hope theme again, which we see right through the letter. Friends, can I say, as we, as elders, as leaders here at Magdalen Road, as we minister to you, as we have the privilege of, of shepherding the flock in some sense, but as we minister to each other as well, as church family, remember those two aspects. Pray that we would be a church like that, where we get the, the mum stuff and the dad stuff right, as Paul puts it. Both are very hard, both are very costly, and if you lose either of them, it all goes a bit wrong. So if you lose the motherly aspect, which is easy to do because it is costly and consuming, it, it means that we just end up using words and we can be a bit harsh and a bit clinical and uncaring and unloving. People become projects or targets because we're just doing encourage, comfort, urge. So don't lose the mum aspect, but also the dad aspect too, the fatherly aspect. Again, it, it's easy to lose that because it can be uncomfortable. Perhaps it means challenging as we exhort each other. It means we have to give more than just the proverbial hugs and hanging out. Sharing lies but never tackling issues. We need both. We need the love and care. We need grace. And we need the words and the seriousness. We need truth. Grace and truth. It's the kind of church we long to be. They must go hand in hand. You lose one or you lose the other and it's a mess. We need both. And yet what's the outcome of a church like this? We've seen that something of Paul's ministry, we've seen something of his motivation, we've seen in the window into his heart. It's a church that's developed. That is, we saw something of it last week. We see this very mature church. Paul was possibly only there for three Sabbaths. It's extraordinary. This model church, it's well developed beyond its years. It always reminds me of um, of the, the character Matilda in a, in, a Roald, in a Roald Dahl book, one of our family favourites, not the ability to move things with your eyes, but, but more the, the, the intelligence, the maturity. Here's a little girl who looks so awfully sweet, but, but actually is scarily grown up. She's mature beyond her years, full of wisdom. They look young, but actually they're very grown up. This is an adult church, and they're not perfect. They'll be... Something to talk of in future weeks. Got some issues going on. But actually one big marker for this Christian maturity that you see is that they are prepared to suffer. You see that they are developed, if you like. You see they are mature because they're willing to suffer. I think that's telling. I think in the West, or I wonder if in the West, 
When, when we suffer, we easily think something's gone wrong. We think God has forgotten us, or we think he's unable to deal with the problem, or unwilling, or he's mean. That it shouldn't be like this, but actually, actually Paul seems to say that it's part and parcel of living the Christian life. Living in a broken world, we're to be a people who will suffer. Which maybe is why hope is such a foreign concept so much of the time for us. The willingness to suffer is there in 14 to 16. For you, brothers and sisters, become imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. We saw something about last week. There's a, there's a minority of the Jewish people in this city who are persecuting them because they trust in Christ. And so they suffer as they receive the gospel. Again, maybe where we easily will clam up and not say what we need to say because we are protecting ourselves because it's too awkward. Maybe where we shrink from the idea of real suffering. Paul seems to say, Thessalonians, you've got it. Thessalonians, like those who brought you the message, you've grasped the nettle and you're prepared to stand out. You're prepared to be different. You're prepared to take the flack. My question is, how do we get better at this? How do we get better at being prepared to suffer for being one of Christ's? Maybe that's a conversation for home groups. A couple of things that strikes me, I think it's a difficult and it's a lifelong thing, but one is I think our vision of God is too small. I think we limit him. I think our, our vision of what it means to be a Christian is too small. Perhaps it's culturally captive. Maybe we don't grasp how much he loves us, his kindness, his protection, his trust. Maybe we're not captivated as we ought to be with him and his love for his people. Maybe that ought to be our prayer for each other. But I'm sure as, as our country gets more and more and more post-Christian, so we need to keep our eyes fixed on him and be brave and trust him. Paul says rather enigmatically that these persecutors always heap up their sins to the limits. The wrath of God has come upon them at the last. And, and different people think different things about that. I think probably what's most likely is he's talking about a future judgment, but because of it's so certain, he's using a past tense. I think that's what's going on. He says Christ will return. Here is a church looking ahead, trusting for Jesus to come back when his wrath will be seen, when his justice will be seen. And so verse 16 is quite a stark way to finish for this morning. But you know, in that starkness, it makes me realize how the rest of chapter 2 is so important. If that is true, if there is to be a future judgment when God's justice will be seen, then ministry, like in chapter 2, must happen. People must be determined as they seek to, to share the message of Christ with those around them. 
We must have a godly drive that is not in it for self, because if, if we're in it for self, we will soon run away. And the way that we do it must be the design that Paul speaks of, full of grace, full of truth, like the mum, like the dad. And the outworking churches that grow up and are prepared to speak and to suffer for him. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much in these verses again. So much to chew over and think through. Guard us, please, again from being simply people who hear your word, but do nothing with it. Work in us this week, we pray. Work in us as individuals, work in us as a church family. We long to be more and more shaped by this kind of ministry practice that Paul outlines for us. Thank you for the privilege of seeing into his heart. And we confess. We confess how far short we fall. And so we pray that you would grow us up in Christ. Be at work in us, among us, through us. For your glory and for our good. Amen.